is a obscure little one. <laughs> First Corinthians 13, 1 through 13. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. It does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, and always perseveres. Love never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I become a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, but then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. All right, so let's recap where we've been on love so far. We've been talking about the love feast for a couple of weeks and uh, kind of made the point that the love feast evolved alongside the early Christian understanding of agape and the way that people thought about the feast and what happened at the feast influenced the way that they thought about what agape meant and the way they thought about what agape meant influenced the practices at the feast. And so you might recall that Agape was a word that existed in kind of the ancient Greek, and the early church took it and kind of branded it for itself, um, and it kind of filled in the idea of agape with the concrete practices that accompanied the love feast. So, so it, it should go without saying that, you know, if you think about the last couple of weeks, we're talking about a church that was kind of having a tough time staying together. You know, they were like fighting about what happened at the love feast, they were fighting about what you did with women in worship. They were fighting about like how you thought about who had what gift and what gift was more important and how the gifts were distributed. And I don't know, there were a lot of fissures and they needed a vision of love that was more than just phylos or eros or storge or any of the other kind of Greek words we might pile on top of it to talk about love. And the point I've been making is that the way that they understand and understood agape like I talked about last week, is, is only kind of coming into view for them. You know, like they're not that far off from what I don't know, theologians call the Jesus event. They're, they're kind of still working out a little bit what it means to follow Christ, to identify as a Christian. And I don't know, the, as we look at the practices, the kind of character of love is starting to become clearer in Paul's prescriptions for how they might have the love feast and, you know, the principle that he suggests today that kind of ties together those last three or four chapters. And uh, yeah, I don't know, I, I, I'm sad Beth wasn't here last week to hear the idea that the transition from that chapter on the spiritual gifts to this chapter on love, anybody remember it was the, the meta gift that we should search for, the, you know, the, the Greek word that needs no translation. And 
as I talked about last week, like love is a solvent. I mean, it's a weird one because it doesn't just dissolve for the sake of dissolving. It like dissolves us into a body. You know, that, that's, I think, the beautiful thing about the vision of, of, of love and, and a body here. And, you don't know, uh, it, it was like a practice or I keep saying love is a verb or an action. But it's more than that. That's only a partial understanding. For the early church, it was like, I don't know, it's hard to say without using nerdy philosophy words. It was an ontology. It was the kind of horizon for our being. It was the point of the universe. It was the target and endpoint and purpose of the cosmos. It's arguably the, the kind of ground of the Trinity itself. And, you know, when, when you, you know, it's weird to say that was kind of only coming into view for them because I feel like in some ways our own understanding of love is partial and it's not fully even coming into view f- for us, you know, until we kind of really work through and think about all the implications of all the things that we're talking about, the love feast, etc. So, you know, what, do you, what happens when you look at the love feast as a practice? We know a couple things, like it was this little slice of kingdom space carved out from the rest of the social relations in the world. And that's why I say it's kind of a solvent. It was a love there was a way of uniting believers without division. So you'd roll to the love feast and like masters were washing the feet of their slaves and men and women who in especially Jewish traditions wouldn't have worshipped together were worshipping together and eating together and temple prostitutes and other various scallywags ate and prayed alongside people of high esteem and you know when you look at the love feast and look at the practices in it they start to define for us a vision of love that is more than just saying sorry (laughs) no it's forgiveness Uh, a vision of love that's more than just a sentiment a vision of love that's more than just a thing or an idea or an internal disposition and you know so what is love then like how do you define it like love is at least as it's defined here and in the preceding chapters something like a form of action that requires other people and in the greatest act of self-restraint in uh, my speaking and or preaching career you can't do it alone Uh, it is both an action and a disposition that requires that we come to others, to God and to other people, with honesty, with authenticity, uh, sacrificing our own ideas and interests and identities, uh, putting your person on the line, putting your pieties on the line, putting your practices on the line. And, you know, people define love in each one of those ways, like love is about self-sacrifice, but I don't think the vision here that Paul has is that self-sacrifice is the goal of love. Self-sacrifice is one means of achieving a larger understanding of love as the kind of orienting point of the universe. And so, you know, we sacrifice all of those things. Love is a, a solvent. It dissolves those barriers and distinction in our status and our practice and our concept. And that's why the metaphor of the body is so powerful. Like the blood cell doesn't just get up one day and is like, you know what, I'm going to go find me some muscle and bone. And if we get enough of us, we can come together and do a body. Like it already only finds its identity in the context of a body. It would be impossible for it to think about itself as having an independent identity all its own. So that's kind of the beautiful paradox of love as Paul is laying it out here. It's like it is a kind of uh, commitment to um, being dissolved into a body and being made into a body. And that should change who we, how we think about ourselves, what our viewpoints are what our practices are, but like simultaneously, that's what makes it a weird solvent. The point today is that it also makes us complete. It doesn't just kind of tear us down. It makes us complete. It, it, it kind of, it, it kind of grafts us into that body and that, that should change everything. 
I think it should change everything because, you know, what are the things that the verse for today says? It opens us to being seen. It invites us to see others. Not only, you know, making us a body is not just like feeling really tightly bound to one another. It's about fundamentally changing our calculus for how we see and how we feel the world. You know, so like, it's not like I should think if something great happens to Brian that I should remind myself that I'm a part of a body and so that's really good for me. Or if something, you know, hurtful happens to Trey, I should say, well, we're part of the body, so I feel real bad for Trey. Like, it's supposed to change our calculus in the exact same way that our body relates to itself, where when something happens to one part of it, the whole feels it, right? It should change how you feel and understand and, and think. And, and, and it does so by bringing us in, in common. It's like a, there's another kind of nerdy way of saying it. Love is our becoming in common. And in becoming in common, we, we become a body. It, it, I think the point I want to make as I kind of go on today is it's more than just that. It's more than just a principle. It describes the basic grain of the universe. Love is a definition of what it means for us to be towards ourselves and towards others and towards God that has a kind of charity and generosity and openness that both shapes us and allows us to shape the character of our community. It's the meta gift. And I'll talk... In, in a little bit in the end about the idea that uh, it is the telos of our existence. It's a fancy way of saying love is the basic point of the cosmos. So we're going to look at the loveiest of all love passages today. It ranks right up there with John 3.16 or maybe the 23rd Psalm or the Sermon on the Mount. It's like the stuff that gets read by that inarticulate aunt or uncle who needs a speaking role at a wedding or it's the placard beneath a ton of Thomas Kincaid pictures. It's like everywhere basically. And my sense is that it's kind of been domesticated. It's, it's been made smaller. It's been made partial. It's been made to, uh, for us, maybe it's connected with a vision of romance or the First Corinthians, Corinthians 13 is like life instructions. And I think it says something so much more radical about love than we expect. But I want to take a second and kind of meditate on uh, what it means for us to have a smaller, more partial more domesticated understanding of love as a church because look it was supposed to be like the foundation of the universe the identity of god the end towards which the cosmos is aimed it was supposed to be the thing that we like planted our flag in the ground in that made and uh, made the kind of unique identity that defines christianity but it became a thing or a sentiment for us it became something like i don't know more intense state of liking maybe it's just an injunction to sacrifice Maybe it's a sentiment or a feeling, but honestly, I think we're kind of undecided about exactly what it is. It's supposed to be our defining characteristic, and a lot of times when you say, well, define it, we'd say, oh, I don't know, it's a many-splendored thing or something like that. And, you know, almost any professing Christian worth their salt would say, well, no, duh, like, it's all about love. But I'm not sure of all the different descriptors that people might pile onto us, that that's the first one that they'd pick. And funnily enough... It doesn't even reach the top of the list for Christians talking about who they are. And, th and there's polling on this. This boggles my mind. So when, when Christians were asked to describe themselves, you know, single characteristic or term, they chose giving and compassionate as the primary descriptors. Okay? Love barely beat out. And I mean barely, like by a percentage. Respectful and friendly. So it's kind of sitting there in like third position for us. Only approximately half of the folks polled identified love as a meaningful descriptor for what it meant to be a Christian. And then it is probably unsurprising that outside the church, the descriptors were a lot different. You can imagine them like 
hypocritical, judgmental, self-righteous, and arrogant. How did Jesus say we'd be known by everyone? By our friendliness? By our respectfulness? I mean, Jesus is pretty clear on this. We'll be known by our love. And, you know, John 13, like, it's not just that, like, internally and certainly externally we're not known by our love, but we find ourselves talking about love in the same empty terms that our culture does, because I think our idea of love as a culture has been totally emptied out, too. Like, what is it? It's a battlefield. It hurts. (laughs) It's something that happens in an elevator. (laughs) It might describe my consumer preferences. But, like, don't we also find ourselves talking about it in the same equivocal manner like when we say what is the loving thing to do you know it's like not immediately clear to us all the time which is fine but like what is love i think the most clear formal definition i don't know if it's clear but at least precise is agape is giving yourself over to the body of christ in each instance that you encounter it so that you can become and feel and act in common with christ and christ's body that's why it's so hard for us to separate a vision of love from a vision of body. It's, and, and if that's the case, like it is acting with the, as I'll talk about later, it's acting with the grain of the universe more than just a question of like what your motives are. It is pointing yourself towards the one true and good, perfect goal of the cosmos. I mean, it, uh, an important part of love is laying aside your idols of self. An important part of love is laying aside your own concepts and identity. An important part of it is collectively opening ourselves to the ultimate purpose of the universe, but the like defining feature of love is what? That it binds us together in Jesus Christ. And at least if you grew up where I grew up or in a, in a place like I grew up, I don't mean Utah, I mean like a, you know, typical evangelical church, the way people would read these first three verses of, and tell me if this doesn't square with your experience, but the way people would read these first three verses of Corinthians 13 is they'd say something like, they are these reflections on how if you do things without your motive being loving, those things are empty. That's, how, that's at least how I heard about it most of the time. It's not wrong. It's too partial. It doesn't see how grand and powerful and revolutionary the vision of love is. So 13.1 says, uh, we'll go through three, if I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And you know how the typical run goes. Like people would drill in on verse three and they'd be like, aha, there it is, right? I can give all I possess to the poor or I can give my body over to be martyred. But if I do it for the sake of boasting, I'm not doing it for love. And so my motive is wrong and therefore I'm nothing. That's the least the typical read as I hear it. There's a big problem with it. You know what the big problem with it is? The word for boasting there is not a pejorative. It's not like trying to gain public sentiment or make yourself a big deal. The word for boasting there is kauchomai, and it means both to express God's glory or to act out of a God-given confidence. It's, it's talking, it's not just, I mean, it's a lot easier to read this verse as something about a caveat on your intentions, if we don't afford ourselves the luxury of reading it that way, it says something much more difficult. Like, giving all you possess to the poor would be an act of incredible self-sacrifice. Giving your body over to hardship, and the word here is not just giving over to hardship, it's not like I have to mow the lawn, it's to be burned. Like, they're talking about martyrdom. And, And at least the kind of thrust of this is that there's no question that 
to give everything away up to and including your life meets the condition of love as self-sacrifice. But this isn't just about the intentions you hold when you do those things. It's about seeing a vision of love that is not partial. It's about seeing a vision of love that fully understands it to be the end goal, the telos, the foundation, and the condition of action for the entire cosmos. It's love, that's what, love is an ontology. What I mean by that is like, this is not just about motive or some implicit selfishness. It's hard to imagine a selfishness that it, it results in giving yourself over to be burned. The problem here is that the sacrifice in and of itself is not enough. Seeing the body is the end and Jesus as the sovereign telos of love is the whole thing. You don't fix the problem by saying, hey, I'm sacrificing myself for the right reasons. My heart's in the right place. I'll give my body over or give my possessions over to glorify Christ. That doesn't quite get at it. Part of it is how we understand not only our motives, not only our intentions, but what it is that we're doing when we act in love and who it is that acts. Because what it is that's acting when we act in love is the body of Christ, that Christ is informing and animating us to come back to the end that is Christ. It feels circular, but it's beautifully circular in the sense that it makes Christ the foundation and the end point of the universe. And that's why the implication of, of three you know, that uh, if I give all I possess to the poor and give my body over to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I have nothing, doesn't actually say I gain nothing. It says something like uh, to act without understanding the full character of love is to act in a way as if you have done no good. Which to me is really interesting. You can imagine a lot of concrete good from, that get, comes from giving up your possessions to the poor. And yet Paul is claiming here, even if the goal is to serve the poor, you've done no good. And the same thing is true of speaking in the tongues of men or angels or basically understanding everything that exists in the cosmos. I heard numerous sermons that basically used one and two as a way of kind of, I don't know, sticking it to those puffed up professorial types who think that they know everything because they have a lot of concepts, but they didn't have the motive of love. And part of that is right, but part of it misses the whole idea that the question of love is not just your motive, is it's do you understand yourself and are you acting with the grain of the universe? Do you understand yourself to be the hands, face, and feet of Christ when you act? And verse 2 ends with what I think is a blatant mistranslation. The end of verse 2 is not, if I do not have love, I am nothing. If you translated it literally, it would say something like this. If I do not hold on to love, I am no one. I am nothing. I am not an individual. I have negated the purpose of my existence in the body by not seeing myself as fully a part of it in word, intention, and deed. Paul's saying something much more radical here than motive. Think about it. He's basically saying like, if I speak, if I know, if I act, if I decide, if I be, if I become, if I do anything without seeing it as part of a movement that is animated by and informed by Jesus Christ and is in line with the basic purposes of of creation, if I understand myself to be a singular agent and not a member, if I focus, for example, on the question of my intention and not instead on the way that I am empowered to act by Jesus Christ, if I see myself as an individual and not as part of a body, if I do not understand myself to be acting with the grain of the universe, I literally make myself no one. That's why it's very important to think about the grammar. Ready for some grammar? I'm terrible at it, but 
I can at least pretend, of the stuff that follows in four through seven. Okay, because the stuff that follows in four through seven, don't we typically take it as a list of the qualities of love? Like love is patient, love is kind, so on and so on. And what is the, the translation gives the impression that this is a list of characteristics of a thing called love. And as a result, we believe that we should check our motives against this list of substantive characteristics of love as basically a noun. But guess what? Love is not a noun here. Love is connected here with, of, with verbs. In fact, in a rhetorically stunning move, I love it, it's beautiful, Paul connects agape with 16 verbs in a row. These are not descriptions of what love has or is. They are descriptions of what love does. And I get why it's translated this way, because it feels really awkward to be like, love patience, you know, and, and love kindnesses. That is awkward, but really it should read something like, love exercises patience, it expresses kindness, it does not act with envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, love rejoices with the truth, love protects, love always acts with trust, always hopes, and always perseveres. But you get my point here. Of course, love is a verb, but more than that, it describes more than just your motive. It's something like the condition of your action and the way that you understand yourself to be aligned with a body. And here's why that is important. I've used this word telos a good bit in other sermons and good bit in, in this sermon today. Anybody, anybody recall the four causes? <laughs> Got your Aristotle on? If you were a, a Greek speaker and thought in the Greek uh, speaking and thinking world, if you wanted to understand the character of a thing, you needed to understand four things about it. And there's nerdy kind of vocabulary for each of these, but you can break it down pretty simply. The four things that the Greeks thought that if you wanted to understand something, you needed to understand, was you needed to understand what the thing was made of, you needed to understand the form that it took, and you needed to understand basically who made it. But there's this fourth one. Like, so if someone says, hey, define a computer, I can be like, well, it's silicone and a bunch of other parts that are put together, and yada, 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 and they're all arranged in a way that allows us to yeah, run a binary data through it, and then there's software, and that you know, gives me inputs that are meaningful and are helpful, and this one particularly is made by ASUS, but they're generally made by computer companies. And you're like, oh, that's a really good definition of a computer. For a Greek thinker, it would have completely missed an important descriptor, the fourth cause, the fourth uh, that one is what the Greeks would have called the teleological cause. And their point was, let's say you want to under understand a hammer, okay? So we'd say, modern folk especially say, well, you understand what it's made of, you understand kind of how it's made, you understand who made it. But if you said that to a Greek, they'd say, well, I don't really get what a hammer is because in order to understand what it truly is, I need to understand what it's for. I need to understand the role or purpose that it plays in the universe. And so the Greeks would have said, if you want to understand the hammer, it's just not the substance that it's made of, it's just not the form that it takes, it's just not who made it, but you need to understand its purpose. You can't understand a hammer without understanding that it had the purpose of driving nails. That's a big difference between us and them, and it matters profoundly here in understanding Corinthians 13. Verse 8 says, this is beautiful. Verse 8 says, love never fails. And I believe that. But the Greek is actually a bit more specific. It uses a word that should be translated as love never fails, falls, or bows down. The Greek word, pipto, 
was the same word that you used to like bowing down before a sovereign or bowing down to honor something or bowing down to say that something was of a more esteemed or higher order. And it turns out to really understand what Paul is saying here, it's not just that love doesn't fail. Love does not bow down to anything. This is not just about the effectiveness of love or the permanence of love. This is about the primacy of love in ordering the cosmos. That it never bows down shows that it is the point of the universe. That it never bows down shows us why John can so confidently declare that God is love. And saying that doesn't mean deifying our culture's conception of love. It means whatever we think love is, it grows out of and defines the very character of God. That's big. The rest of verse 8 says, Where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. But where there, is, where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. It's such a beautiful insight if you think about it from the perspective of the telos. The parts here, and if you understand the kind of flow of the argument here, it's not just about time. It's about the idea that God gives us these gifts as an extension of God's goodness. And some of them, like knowledge and prophecy, will one day no longer be necessary, not because they are bad, but because their telos, their end, is fulfilled. When we see Christ face to face, when we know that history is not quite come to an end, but come to completion, we won't need prophecy. We won't need knowledge. When we see God face to face and history is completed or fulfilled, we exist in part until that time, but one day in Christ, the universe will find its completion in love. One day we will have reached the telos of the universe, the end of the universe, the thing that defines the meaning of everything, and that is the full and loving presence of Jesus Christ. And that's not just me doing fancy Greek philosophizing. The reason why I did that whole run is because it's exactly the word that Paul uses in verse 10. The word for when completeness comes is a telos word. When we are teleion, when the end comes that puts everything together, the parts disappear because they too will be dissolved by the solvent that is the love of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, the stuff about childness, childishness takes on a much different tone, in my opinion. I learned it as when I was a child. I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. Not quite. For now, we see only in reflection. Then we shall see face to face. And the run that I got when I was a kid was like, hey, grow up and love one another. Stop acting like selfish children. And it's not like that is wrong. But I believe that the relevant child here is not just us, but it is the body and the church and the cosmos. And the point is not just to moralize about selfish or childish behavior. The point is that when we see the grain of the cosmos as being oriented towards Jesus Christ, when we see Jesus Christ's fingerprints in it, and we see Jesus Christ and Christ's love as the point and defining characteristic of it, as the meaning of an incarnate God, well, then we realize that it's not only us, but the universe that will one day reach that telos of perfect union in love wherein there is no division but only unity in the person of Jesus Christ. And if you think like a Greek speaker, the implication is blazingly clear. It should provide for us something that is super powerful in thinking about the character of love is that if love is the purpose of the universe and the telos of the universe, Christ's love defines the universe as it is now. It is already here. 
It is already oriented towards that point. It already finds its identity in that kind of love. And as a result, we are called on not just to wait around for love to appear, nor to just be a little bit more kind, nor just to be a little bit more patient, but rather we are called to lean into the person of Jesus Christ embodied and incarnated in the singular person, but also as the animating principle of our community and the very point of the cosmos. And then and only then can you make sense of that last part of 12. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. The Greek literally says, now I am incomplete. Now I am just a part. But then I shall become whole. And because I am whole, I can be known for who I am in whole. Man, that's powerful to me. What a, what we become whole in love. We be, in becoming whole, we are known and seen and embraced and loved. Thirteen. These three remain, faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these is love. And I just think it's so beautiful. Faith, hope, and love abide. Faith will end when we see in full. Someday it will be fulfilled. Someday we will not need the substance for that which we do not see. Hope will end. Not because hope is limited, but because the object of our hopes will be achieved. But the point of all of these is that love is the greatest because it will never fail, it will never bow down, it will never cease. It is, in fact, the thing that orders the entirety of the universe. It is an expression of the identity of Christ. It is the most durable and deepest spiritual reality. It is the foundation and the horizon and the very ontology of the cosmos because God is love. Quick coda. You might be expecting it. Anybody got a crack at what the word for greatest is here? You'll love it. Love is the metis. Love is the overarching, the biggest, the largest, not just the most excellent, but the principle that ties everything else together. And when it comes in its completeness, there will be no need for faith We will encounter face to face the substance of what is not seen. And there will be no need for hope because all that we yearn for will be fully and perfectly present in the person of Jesus Christ who will sit at the table of the eternal love feast surrounded by all God's people forever and ever. Amen. Questions or talk?